Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. And this week, who knows, maybe a task team might be put together. You, you never quite know, but we seem to have a president who is in part trying to be president of this country with your help or with the help of task teams. One of the questions that has to be confronted as in yesterday is whether or not we should have mandatory vaccines. Would it be constitutionally permissible? And beyond that, is it sensible as a policy option? And what would it look like anyway? There are a number of legal, policy and political questions bunched together under this massive, massive but urgent topic. And I'd asked Richard Callant, uh, who is a well-known and excellent law professor, as well as an author, columnist, and a political analyst, to join me on this platform and to puzzle through some of these questions, particularly at the intersection of law and politics. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Richard, good day to you, and thanks so much for coming on this platform. Well, thank you, Yusebis. It's always a great pleasure and a great privilege to talk with you. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. And frankly, I'm not sure there's a more important one around right now. Absolutely. I want to put you on the spot. Imagine you were a constitutional court judge and my elevator pitch on behalf of the state to make vaccines compulsory is as follows. Sure, people have a right to bodily integrity, Yes, you have a right to dignity, which I accept as a pretending to be lawyer, can never be violated, even in a state of emergency, it's the most foundational. But there are also duties that we have as a state to protect other people and keeping them safe and making sure that everyone lives in an environment where the general health of the population has to be balanced with those individual rights that I have to do what I want with my body or not have things done to my body unless I consent as a matter of autonomy. But in this case, the reasons why the balance, I would claim, falls on side compulsory vaccination is that we have an urgent pandemic that we need to solve for. The only way to deal with it effectively in terms of the current science is through vaccination. And therefore, if we make vaccination mandatory, not by strapping you down and putting jabs in your arm, but through incentives, like, for example, forbidding you from entering certain premises, getting certain services, unless you have proof that you've been vaccinated, that that is reasonable in a democratic society like ours, because it is 
based on an overriding set of societal interests. What say you? So I think, as you put the public policy argument very clearly. No doubt we'll come back to that and talk about the politics of that and Ramaphosa's leadership or lack of leadership on that. But you've asked me about the, the legal aspect specifically, and you've asked me to imagine being a constitutional court judge. I'd say three short things about that. Firstly, of course, there is the legal test, uh, and that involves Section 36 of our Constitution, which is the limitations clause, and it carries a sort of checklist of, of things that uh, the court must go through to decide whether one right should prevail in effect over another. Mm. And we can discuss that if you want. So that's that's the mechanics of the adjudication. That's no doubt what the court would do when it heard a case such as this. But the second point is I do think that courts, which are judges, are made up of uh, bone and flesh, and they are influenced by the surrounding milieu. Mm. Uh, and, of course, they, they can't admit that, but it's... Uh, what's sometimes referred to as the judicial inarticulate premise. So it's the, mm. the, the premise from which they work for, which is, uh, it could be something from their childhood, it could be their, 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 their political outlook, or it could be a reflection of what they think is, is right for society at that point. Yes. And I think that um, the constitutional court judges now and for the last 20 or more years would have an instinctive sense that collective rights in this case, as you've expressed it, would be more important to weigh in the balance than individual rights. So and if an individual says, my individual, Eusebius Macaiser, Richard Callum, is being infringed by this prick on my arm, this vaccination, weighed against the massive potential public policy gains in terms of securing the health and livelihoods and the economy, of society more broadly. I'm very clear where I think most constitutional court judges would fall and want to fall. And that might well then influence their reasoning and how they play out section 36 uh, in the first uh, instance. So those I think are the two major considerations. That uh, I like that. I like how you have delved into the legal realism in terms of what might preoccupy in the background, but in a real way, our judges and specifically also constitutional court justices. And in a sense, by, by doing that and cashing that out, you've, you've, you've inadvertently started engaging on the first question of how a limitations test might play out. And I wonder whether we could go there. You are the lawyer and the academic. I just did a couple of years of law studies. But I would see the following couple of points and then take over from here and, and tell me how you think it might play out more substantively, that mandatory vaccination is a rational way, because it's based on scientifically sound premises, of dealing with the pandemic. There's a link between that policy, of course there are many different versions of it, but broadly speaking the concept and trying to deal with this public health threat that we have. There aren't less restrictive ways of dealing with it, We've tried non-pharmaceutical interventions, washing our hands, wearing masks, ventilating, keeping a safe distance. And those help, but they only get you so far. Vaccination, we now know from near-scientific orthodoxy, should be top of that list. And the non-pharmaceutical interventions come second to that, which means that there aren't less restrictive ways of dealing with this public health crisis. I mean... If one thinks about it in, in those terms, it seems to me that all of those shopping lists of things that I can't recall offhand, 
that is the subheading under the limitations test that you'd be on a good wicket if you are a state law advisor. Well, I think your your two years or whatever it was served you very well, Sarah, <laughs> because your analysis is is very good. Uh, I I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't pick any holes in it. And you 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 settle on I, I think the key phrase here, which is less restrictive means. That is built into the Section thirty six analysis, and it basically says, when weighing up two competing rights, and where one right is in effect cutting across another and causing that other right to be uh, infringed or limited, to use the legal language, you have to weigh up the benefits and the costs in relation to both. And one of the key elements of that test is to assess whether a less restrictive means could be taken, mm. thereby reducing the harm done to the individual's rights. And I think the the court would be uh, bound to look at evidence. Mm. And a bit like you, you'll recall, of course, the groundbreaking watershed case of the HIV uh, uh, treatment, antiretroviral treatment case, back in, I think, the year 2001 against the Mbeki government that was yeah. being so intransitive. In that case, the evidence that was brought before the court that showed that there was, I think, a 70% chance that if properly taken, the drug navirapine, it would, there was a 70% chance of reducing HIV transmission to unborn children of pregnant HIV-positive mothers. Now, that evidence was so powerful to the court because it basically said to the government, how can you not use this drug yeah. given the evidence that yeah. shows that it works? Now, that's relevant to the vaccine conversation because mm. the evidence, the medical evidence of, of the effectiveness of vaccines, it seems to me is, is overwhelming. Um, and certainly our job, uh, I say our job, but, but as commentators, as judges, as public policymakers, our job is not to second guess the medical science, but to make sure that we understand it, respect it and go with it and not do what Mbeki did with HIV AIDS, sure. which was to, to sort of tilt like Don mm. Quixote at windmills mm. and to uh, very curiously suggest that the medical science was, was wrong. And that's, of course, what the anti-vaxxers do. They challenge the medical science heterodoxy. Mm. It's possible they're right, but there's no evidence that they are right. They are not bringing counter evidence to bear on this. And so I think they would struggle in court to, to win that argument. But one other point you say, but in your, in your uh, analysis there, in your question, you used another word, rationality, mm. because it occurs to me that there are two ways in which the anti-vax community might challenge this. One would be on a, a breach of rights case. They would say that their right to bodily integrity in Section 12 or their right to uh, freedom of religion, belief and opinion in Section 15, those rights were being transgressed. Mm. But they might also argue that uh, the mandate, the vaccine mandate, so-called, was irrational. Mm. And there a different test applies, which is whether the public policy goal uh, rationally is connected yes. to the mean to, to the objective. Yes. In other words, the means used, does it serve the end? Mm. Uh, and again, it would be a question of evidence. Mm. And again, I think the court would find that there was a reasonable, sorry, a rational connection in this case, and it would pass that test. And of course, bear in mind that in the last year and a half, even though the government was rightly criticised at times and there were inconsistencies and contradictions in its policies, uh, it won, I think, every single challenge in court. 
uh, on rationality grounds. It actually has had a very good run in court over the last couple of years compared with over the last two decades mm. where the government persistently lost when it was challenged. Mm. Richard, are there examples in case law of where right to bodily integrity has been limited because it's been justified by the lights of the limitations clause. And the reason why I'm speaking slowly is not to try and sound profound with grammatical pauses, but but what I, the kinds of examples I'm looking for must involve an invasion of your physical body because our rights get limited all the time, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of movement, etc. I mean, it's, there's really nothing revolutionary about rights being limited, and that's the elementary deliberate mistake that many people who are against the, these policy proposals keep making, and they do it propagandistically. Many of them know better. But what's interesting about this policy idea, if one can give any kind of sort of ascribe generosity to those who... who, who who wonder where the government should be allowed to come up with this kind of policy, is that I'm literally like doing something to your physical body. And we've got unexpressed views about how sacrosanct the physical body is as part of who I am as a person, if you know what I mean. And although freedom of movement, religious praxis, all of these things, political rights, the right to organize, I mean, those things are also important to who we are. But those debates don't don't annoy us and, and make us nervous and I think it's partly because they don't obviously implicate the body as much as a needle does. I suppose not, although it is a very small needle and it doesn't <laughs> hurt very much and it doesn't last. I agree. <laughs> so, you know, again, but it's a serious, it may, it's, a, it's, it's amusing, but it's also a very serious point legally because the intrusiveness of that procedure is, is actually very modest. Sure. Sure. A better argument would be on the anti-vax side would be to say, well, the substance that goes into your body, the actual vaccine, mm. uh, is, is intrusive and harmful. But of course, to, to say that, you've got to prove that. You would have to produce evidence of that. Yeah. Um, and that's that, I think, is going to be very, very difficult for them mm. um, because I, I don't know of such evidence. Mm. Um, has there been a case in South Africa uh, since '94, that that's involved similar facts on on bodily integrity. Not that I'm aware. So, of. what I was thinking of, for example, I was trying to guess where such a case would reside in case law, in terms of regulation um, legislation, for example, that govern mental health. Um, if I'm not compass mentis, medically speaking, in mental health facilities, for example, can the psychiatrist, against my express wishes, for my objective best interest, make sure that I am administered psychiatric medication, for example? Well, I'm, I've got no doubt that the medical health, medical health legislation permits that authority. It allows such medical uh, practitioners to apply uh, such substances as they may need to control somebody who is, for example, violent or a danger to themselves or dangerous to the, uh, to the hospice or hospital where they're based. Um, but no such case that I know of has come before the courts. The, the cases that have have tended to be about religious freedom and conscience. Mm. But of course, the interesting thing here, and, and, and there would be a debate in court about this, is that uh, the, the government could say, well, you're absolutely entitled to maintain your, your freedom of conscience in this. It, it just may mean you have to sacrifice your, your job. Absolutely. Or you may not be able to go to shop at Dischem anymore if yeah. you feel so strongly about it. So by all means, have your freedom. 
but recognize that in the collective common public interest, you may have to uh, make other sacrifices in order to preserve your individual freedom. Absolutely. And that's why this is a big philosophical, as well as a narrow legal question of rights and rationality. It's a big mm-hmm. philosophical question. Mm-hmm. And of course, it has very significant political uh, ramifications, which are reverberating in many countries around the world. Before we end by dipping into the politics, and I, I can't believe how quickly time goes, I love your brain. Um, just a, a, a last sort of stab, pardon the pun, at the comparative law question. When someone is drunk, um, and I, I don't drive, so I don't have an opportunity to drunk drive, not that I should want to, um, but I'm just wondering if people refuse, for example, to have blood drawn so that tests can be done, can that be done against your will? I don't know. Um, It's it's certainly, um, oh, well, if if I I was thinking more in the context of an injury, if someone's brought in, you know, who's injured, I suppose they can refuse medical treatment. You Mm. you do have that right. And in general, um, medical practitioners will, uh, to a point, accept that someone has the right, in effect, to die. Um, It's an interesting one because uh, medical ethics suggests that doctors must always act to preserve life and limb. But in the end, there is also a, um, a recognition that people have the right to refuse treatment mm. Mm. and to walk away from treatment. Mm. But if it comes to a question of criminality and yeah. breaking the law in relation to the amount of alcohol in one's blood or drug narcotics, then um, the police have the authority to re- take uh, such a, a measure. Yeah. And yeah. that's part of the criminal code. It's part of the, the governing authority that we give, the legitimacy that comes mm. with, with law and order. I think anti-vaxxers, if they were to ponder this more carefully, would recognise that many of these intrusions on their liberty that they seem so anxious to preserve in the case of this vaccination yeah. are already uh, interfered Absolutely. with in many, many ways. Absolutely. Richard, let's talk um, as fellow political analyst on the politics now. Um, you know, this president was lauded for so many reasons at end of 2017 at NASRAC. I think most importantly, we'd all now admit that a large part of euphoria of the Ramaphoria was he is not Jacob Zuma. And to the extent that that's too thin and it was a more generous hopefulness, it was probably on the basis of this man may not like explosive headlines, but um, he is very shrewd and likes processes. It takes his time, but the results will be there. And it's kind of turned out at best to be a big a mixed bag and at worst a disappointment. And on this question of compulsory or mandatory vaccinations, yet again, journalists asked him, you know, the other day while he's out on the rest of the continent, what's your opinion? And he kicks for touch. Well, I've got a country of you know, citizens who love to engage, citizens are engaging. And I mean, you know, he just looks and sounds laborious and um, and seems to, to have committed himself to agnosticism. Yes, and and I, I share your sort of jaundice over, over Ramaphoria. I think the, the bubbles burst uh, and, and the impact is not there, the positive impact. So I think we're entitled now to be much more critical of Ramaphosa's uh, leadership style. And of course, his leadership style of consult and dialogue is in many ways a very good form of leadership. The question is, is it the right form of leadership at a time of crisis? Absolutely. And I'm trying to, I'm sort of 
a quarter of the way into a book on presidential leadership at a time of crisis, looking at the different South African presidents. Mm. And, and crisis leadership requires a different form of leadership mm. because of the crisis. The crisis creates urgency, it creates stress, uh, and, and it requires, therefore, the leader to probably be bolder, but also to find other ways to take people with him or her. Now, on the vaccine mandate, to say, well, I've got a country with different views, I think is very, very weak yeah. and, and very uh, misguided, because what it does is to say to the anti-vaxxers, you've got space. You're, 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 we're, we're listening to you. We, Absolutely. Legitimize legitimizes what I think is a thoroughly illegitimate and downright selfish, frankly, attitude. And the president, who says that he believes in the vaccine, should be saying, I believe in it so strongly that I want you all to take vaccines because it's the right thing to do for everyone and for the economy and for society and for your, your public health. And he should be much stronger on that. Richard, you've uh, nailed it. Nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. I got so annoyed with some Facebook friends the other day. I subtweeted them in turn with the Facebook status update without naming them. And it may as well also apply to our president because the statuses that I'd seen were of the mold, oh, I'm so over debate on my timeline about the vaccines. I wish people who were debating this for and against can just give us all a break. And one of the many points that I, that, I, that I made that I would still argue for is that there's a false equivalence that you create when you put yourself above the parapet. So firstly, there's nothing virtuous in lacking an opinion in the middle of a pandemic. But in addition to that, when you say let them debate, you are not neutral because if there is massive repercussions as a result of misinformation, disinformation then the stance that you take, even if your intention is to be this grand adjudicator, to play Socrates, it nevertheless has got real impact on those debates and it makes it seem as if there is epistemic e equality between the anti-vaxxers and the scientists. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Eusebius. You've also nailed it. And I think the, the, the duty of a president, or the duty of a government at such a time and such a moment, is to nail its colours to the mast and to lead and to take people with you, not by giving everyone a, a, the same space and the same rights of de debate, which you normally would. It's a time of crisis. People are dying. People's livelihoods are being lost. The economy is in ruins because of this pandemic. And the way out of it, or the best way out of it right now, seems to be vaccines. Yeah. And by the way, you say this, that was obvious, I think, or reasonably obvious a year or more ago. Uh, I, I remember with, with my advisory group and others debating this. And in April last year, we were saying, look, this thing, judging by history, the Spanish flu and other equivalent things, it's going to drag. It's not going to be over in six months. We're talking two years. And the way out of it will be vaccination. Mm -hmm. So from the get-go, the Ramaphosa government should have been focused, A, on vaccination. Well, they were slow on that. Maybe they were misled, mm -hmm. maybe they were naive, maybe mm -hmm. global apartheid, vaccination apartheid, as Cyril has now named it, uh, played its hand. But one way or another, South Africa was behind the curve on that. And we've, we've not really ever caught up, have we? Absolutely. Secondly, the question of mandates, because if vaccination is your end game, you need enough people to play by that rule and to, to join the game. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're at now with the vaccination. And globally, as well as in South Africa, this is the cutting edge debate. And whether it's in Austria, or the United Kingdom, United States, or in South Africa, this is the number one issue now. How do you get enough people to be uh, accepting of the fact they must vaccinate? How do you get consensus, sufficient consensus in society that if you do not 
choose to vaccinate, fine, but you lose out. You have to. You may lose your job. You certainly can't go to restaurants. You can't go to nightclubs or football matches, etc. Richard, second last question, a leadership question, speculative but anchored in cumulative observing of leaders in our body politic and elsewhere. What's your take psychopolitically on why this president of ours tends to prevaricate so much? Is it just in his personality or are there institutional constraints either within the state or within the party that play a explanatory role, even if it's not the whole story? I think it's partly in his personality. I think he's quite risk averse. But much of that risk averseness, I think, comes, uh, and, and, and I'd welcome your view on this, having also watched the ANC for a long time. Is it not a reflection of politics of the ANC, that it's so rough there, so divisive? And he, of course, suffered bitter setbacks yeah. and a bruising exile uh, 20 years ago when Mbeki cast him out into the business world yeah. and away from public life. And I think once bitten, twice shy, mm. I think he's learned lessons mm. and he's learned the lesson that you take people with you. And whenever you're making a tough, uh, politically risky, risky decision, you need to protect yourself mm. with, with process. And that's what he always does. And he always uses process. So whether it's appointing the chief justice or appointing the national director of public prosecutions or, or now vaccine mandates, or economic recovery, there's always a task team or a process of some sort. <laughs> now, again, that would be a very good way of governing if we were Sweden at a time of, of socioeconomic uh, health prosperity and we weren't in the middle of a combined fiscal climate uh, inequality uh, public health crisis. You know, we, it's, it's, a, it's a huge storm. Um, a, a, a bringing together of crises. Now, in those times, you can't afford to consult all the time. Mm. You have to be bolder. You have to cut through yeah. and take leadership. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to add my view too much there. I, I once wrote a small little piece on this, but when you've eventually got your manuscript on leadership, we can have a, a longer discussion on leadership specifically. But just as a parenthetical comment, I think in addition to what you're saying, and it co it's coherent, it coheres with what you are saying, um, I think he also got so much praise for his leadership style as a chief negotiator that when he came back after his forays into business, I think he naturally, whether he thought about it or whether he's doing it instinctively, is still stuck in Codessa mode and takes that as the template with which to be a president right now. Yeah, I think I think that's right. He believes in he loves multi-stakeholder processes. He believes if you lock all the most powerful relevant actors into a process and into a room and tell them they can't leave until they've reached yeah. sufficient <laughs> consensus, to use that magical expression from Cadessa days, yeah. sufficient consensus, then you'll move forward. And Absolutely. of course, it, if you're a political leader, if you if you do it that way, you you so like an insurance policy, because you can then blame that process. Yes. And you can say, well, it wasn't me. It was it was the sufficient right. consensus yeah. that emerged from that process. And you have buy-in, yeah. You have the full buy-in. But we don't have time for that, you say. Exactly. I think you and I agree on that. Exactly. The, 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 the pandemic is causing such trouble. Now is the time for people to get vaccinated uh, and to to uh, create a vaccine mandate uh, framework, it, which, which may, by the way, we haven't covered this, it may not be one size fits all. You may need to have adaptations of it. Sure. And you may need to have uh, different levels of, of mandate according to different sorts of activity. Yeah. Um, but that's detail. And by the way, that should have been thought about a year ago. Because if you and I are right in thinking this was going to always be the end game, this task team should have been appointed a year ago. Yeah. Not, not, a, not two weeks ago. Yeah. Last question. Not... 
where to from here do you think, you know, things will go? Um, but ideally, I mean, you know, if the president listens to our podcast and um, gives you gives you a call and say, hey, um, between you and me, I haven't even got this task team up. Um, what what advice would you give him after after getting the call? I would say uh, you will have the majority on your side if you move forward. The anti-vaxxers, like any libertarian, individualistic, selfish, frankly irrational group of people, uh, always make a lot more noise than they have real power and following. So they're they're very vocal. Uh, on social media, they will summon 2,000 people to march and cause trouble in Vienna or um, Washington or perhaps even in Johannesburg, mm. but they do not speak for the majority. And, and I would say to the president, don't fall into the trap of thinking that they are a powerful voice in society. They are wrong and you must show that they are wrong and you must make sure that the majority of people uh, recognize why they are wrong and that by taking the vaccine and supporting a vaccine mandate you are helping everybody move forward and get out of the, the crisis richard callant incisive as always wonderful speaking to you thanks so much for coming on the platform and looking forward to speaking again in the near future thank you very much indeed you say it's always a privilege and uh, i appreciate the uh, invitation and the chance to discuss this with you thank you 